This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar Investment Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. The content is intended for U.S. audiences only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar, Inc. and its subsidiaries. This includes, but is not limited to, Morningstar Investment Management, LLC and Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services are registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. Welcome to Simple But Not Easy. I'm Drew Carter. Today, we'll be hearing from Philip Strail and Edward Fain from Morningstar Investment Management. But first, I want to share some exciting news if you haven't already heard. The Morningstar Investment Conference for Investment Professionals will be held virtually this year on September 16th and 17th. Morningstar is offering the same research, analysis, and insight for investment professionals you'd get at the live event for the reduced price of $149. And the best part is you can join us from wherever you are as long as you have Wi-Fi. For more information or to register, visit go.morningstar.com forward slash MIC. Again, the website is go.morningstar.com forward slash MIC. Now on to the episode. Today, we'll hear from Philip Strail and Edward Fain about their views on aggregate reward for risk in markets today. They'll also share some of the asset class convictions that our investment team has developed over the past quarter. These convictions encompass our valuation-driven perspective on reward for risk at the asset class level and are used by our portfolio managers when allocating capital and sizing positions in their portfolios. Philip is head of capital markets and asset allocation for the Americas, and Ed is portfolio manager and the global lead for America's fixed income research at Morningstar Investment Management. And I'm very pleased to welcome both of them back to Simple But Not Easy. Before we begin, note that today's audio comes from a recent webcast in which Philip and Ed presented slides. We will add a link to that presentation in the notes section for this episode, or you can get a copy by emailing us at simple at morningstar.com. With that in mind, I'll hand it over to Philip, who will begin by talking about aggregate reward for risk. If you want to pull off uh, pull up the first slide, we'll start with the um, reward for risk uh, framework. Um, and uh, the importance of that framework is it helps us uh, think about how much risk we want to take in our multi-asset portfolios. That manifests itself oftentimes uh, with whether we're over or underweight stocks or bonds in target risk portfolios, for example. There's really uh, four pieces, four pillars that make up our aggregate reward for risk view. Uh, we'll address uh, all these four pillars um, uh, in, in due course, uh, but I will provide a quick uh, outline of the, the four pieces and um, just confirming that our overall conviction is uh, medium today, uh, sort of tending uh, to the downside from that. So uh, the four pieces are the first one is capital supply. Uh, that's looking at whether capital is uh, plentiful or scarce, uh, looking at things like issuance, dynamics, the terms uh, of issuance, both in, in debt and equity markets. Uh, the second piece is valuations. Do we see uh, overvalued or undervalued markets um, we look at the, the globe overall and uh, the broad opportunity set. Uh, the third piece is risk aversion. That's looking at whether both uh, public and private investors are excessively optimistic or pessimistic about the future. We tend to use that as a contrarian signal. So if there's optimism in the market, that's a bearish view for us, for example. And then finally, we look at fundamental risk. And fundamental risk is the risk of a large fall in corporate earnings over the next three years that's larger than a typical downturn. Overall, um, as I mentioned, our conviction is medium, um, tilting slightly towards the downside. So as a result of that, uh, many of our multi-asset portfolios are, are balanced or slightly underweight uh, risk in our portfolio. On the next slide, uh, before we go into the individual components directly, we uh, provide a bit of a, uh, a time series in terms of how that has evolved in recent quarters. Uh, we started the year uh, with a view that the reward for risk was uh, low to medium, meaning that we felt uh, risk was somewhat expensive. We were underweight uh, risk getting into this downturn. We felt that both valuations and capital supply 
were um, low to medium. We also felt that there was uh, greater than usual fundamental risk, uh, mainly because of the policy space available and, and monetary policy in particular. Um, but as we've um, moved through this downturn, things have improved. Uh, looking at these measures, uh, markets became cheap. When we looked at valuations, um, capital supply uh, uh, reversed in terms of uh, you know the terms available to investors improved uh, significantly. Um, and we've also seen uh, investor risk aversion improve uh, in the March period. And since then, we've seen a sharp reverse, reversal of that. Um, so, um, you know, some of these pieces, particularly the investor risk aversion piece, has dropped down. But overall, we still think that the reward for risk is more attractive than where we were at the beginning of the year. So, with that, we'll take a closer look at the, each one of these four components. Uh, to do that, I will turn it over to Ed uh, to speak about the fundamental risk component first. Thanks, Philip. Um, and um, it's great to be here today. Okay, so just first looking at the fundamental uh, risk uh, framework, you know, as Philip mentioned, you know, what we're concerned about is, you know, are there reasons um, that are creating a vulnerability where we might see, you know, a per what we call a, like maybe a permanent impairment of capital or a permanent sort of um, sort of uh, effect on earnings. And when it comes to the fundamentals, what we're trying to do is see, you know, are there fundamental excesses or fragilities, um, you know, that might raise the risk of that happening. And so what you see in the framework here is that really three pieces um, feeding into our overall fundamental risk score. The first piece is a quantitative crisis model. So that's really sort of something that's built by our economics uh, effort over here at Morningstar. Um, and really, it's a quantitative um, framework that's trying to understand, you know, are, is there a particular vulnerability in a host of countries around the world um, of, say, a banking crisis or a currency crash, something along these lines. So um, that's a quantitative piece um, from the economic side. After that, we've got pieces that are built from the fixed income side and the equity side. On the fixed income side, what we're really trying to think about is um, a policy space. So, you know, are there on the monetary and fiscal policy side, is there, um, you know, constraints or um, uh, excesses such that it sort of maybe limits the ability of the authorities to enact macroeconomic policies in such a way as to sort of guard outcomes and, and, and thus there are vulnerabilities there? And then finally, on the equity uh, side of things, what we do is we look at um, industries um, worldwide and we build a, a, a range of scorecards. And we're looking there to see, you know, is there a sort of systematically important expansion in an industry? What you might think of, I, I guess, um, it, you know, a, a very high growth that's maybe creating uh, vulnerabilities in the future. Sort of think, think about bubbles, uh, something along those lines. Next slide, please. So turning to the... Um, the policy side of that, um, you know, our conclusions on the policy side is we think, look, fundamental risks have undoubtedly increased uh, in the wake of the, the coronavirus outbreak. Um, and, you know, this is one of the key scores that's come in at a low to medium. Um, and, you know, we, we think it's still there. The, the, the key reason that it's, it's, not, it's not lower is actually we just think that, you know, the uh, unprecedented scale of the outbreak has been matched with an unprecedented scale of uh, fiscal and monetary policy response. Now, um, you know, we're, we're calling this out as um, low to medium, partly because, you know, obviously monetary, in terms of the monetary policy response, you know, interest rates have really just been brought low across the globe. Uh, and so there's potentially limited uh, further space there. On the fiscal side, we actually think, you know, there's significantly more space actually and more space than was commonly understood but we've seen significant action so far and so you know one of the questions and paula has been talking about this more recently for instance is you know we need to see that sustained um you know for the effect uh, as long as the the you know the um shutdown caused by the coronavirus continues and so there's some risks there just about to the extent it might be uh, sustained. We haven't seen specific formal coordination yet, sort of the helicopter money type uh, framework, uh, a little bit from in the UK, but we have seen some incredible measures such as the ECB, um, you know, issuing uh, bonds at sort of joint European level uh, to fund grants 
uh, as well as you know the um, sort of treasury-backed uh, Fed purchases of corporate debt. And just looking at the fiscal response below, you can see uh, you know in GDP terms, you know these responses have been significant. But the one key thing I wanted to draw out here is. You know, whilst the uh, U.S. response really dwarfs the other in terms of the light blue, which is the, the, the fiscal response and expected easing, and obviously this is a moving feast. We're seeing additional measures being uh, thrashed out in, in, in Congress and the Senate at, at the current time. If you look at Europe, on the other hand, you know, and, and the U.K., those sort of uh, economies with slightly more socialist bents have uh, seen have a much larger sort of automatic stabilizer so that'll be unemployment support and things like that. So even though they haven't done as much in terms of specific measures targeted at the crisis, they have these automatic pieces that come to play. And so you see a bit more of a level uh, playing field. Uh, next slide, please. So overall, you know, when we look at everything, as I said, we come out with a low to medium on this. You know, we do think there is scope on the fiscal side, and that's the key. You know, the monetary side really helps assets. The fiscal side, uh, you know, is something that can really be directed at the, um, the, the, the real economy. Uh, you know, whilst the lockdown's in place, that's somewhat constrained, um, but we do think that capacity is there. One of the concerns, I guess, is about that political dimension. So overall, we're coming out at a low to medium, perhaps towards the upper end of that. Next slide, please. So now we'll move on from the fundamental side to the valuation side. Um, so as Philip said, what we're trying to do on the valuation side, obviously, we're looking at valuations uh, in a piecemeal um, basis all the time. What we're trying to do is really stand back and get the bigger picture. So. We look at a range of measures. We look at our, you know, our forward-looking measures, um, so our valuation implied returns and the spread of the, the, the current valuation implied return to what we consider the fair return. Um, we look at those measures uh, through their histories. Then we look at a range of historic measures. We'll look at um, a range of valuation multiples, um, you know, uh, cyclically adjusted price to earnings, um, uh, total yields, price to book, price to sell. We look at a range of measures. And we're, what we're trying to do is really stand back and say, when you really stand back and look at this, is value, valuation standing significantly away from normal uh, to such an extent that we think uh, you know, that, that um, should move the dial in terms of our overall aggregate reward for risk view? And what you can see here is, you know, in the, uh, you know, with the um, onset of the coronavirus, we really did see that scorecard shift up. So it was shifting up from a low to medium level, and it really shifted decisively into, into medium and was almost knocking the door on sort of a medium to high, you know, with the significant efforts from the authorities and the improvement in liquidity and the bounce back in pricing around the globe, we've seen that really sort of come back significantly. It is still standing in medium, um, perhaps getting close to knocking on the door of, of a low to medium. But, but for now, we'd still call this out as a medium. Uh, next slide, please. If we just look in this slide at um, our own uh, valuation implied returns, there's another window on that. So what you can see here is um, developed markets in blue, emerging markets in green, and global sectors um, in red. And what you'll see is, you know, we saw a, that significant shift up um, in comparison to recent history. And whilst we've seen a retrenchment over the last uh, few months, um, what you'll see is, you know, it hasn't really come back all the way. And so we are still standing above where we are with, you know, emerging markets really standing out um, there in comparison to the other two. To an extent, those other two are really being sort of pulled down by the U.S., where we've had seen a real um, sort of bounce back and, and overall our view is, you know, the U.S. is still a reasonably a sort of expensive market. With that, I'll pass over to Philip. Thank you, Ed. Um, so I'll now turn to the, the last two pillars of the reward for risk framework. If you go to the next slide and we'll uh, speak about the, the risk aversion element, which we're uh, approximating with uh, what we call a global investor sentiment uh, index. Uh, what you're seeing here are uh, a host of uh, indicators, 44 of them, that we look at across five uh, global regions, United States, Japan, Europe, UK, and emerging markets, uh, which helps us understand um, 
risk aversion or investor sentiment across those markets. Uh, there's broadly three categories of indicators we look at. The first one uh, category is expectations. Uh, are individual investors uh, more optimistic than they usually are? Um, that can, we can sort of look at through surveys. We can also look at, for example, sell-side analysts in terms of their expectations uh, today relative to history. Uh, the, the second category are positioning indicators. What do people do uh, with their portfolios? One thing we look at there are margin debt. Do people borrow excessively against uh, their holdings uh, within their brokerage account? We also look at IPOs as an indicator there. And then finally, uh, the third uh, category are price-based measures. Those are things like the 200-day moving average and also the performance of small-cap stocks relative to large-cap stocks. Um, so as we look at this, uh, this heat map here, we can sort of see uh, the time dimension, a little bit of what has happened throughout history. And there's three periods that were highlighted here. The first one is uh, kind of the aftermath and kind of going into the global, uh, the, the dot-com bubble, uh, the, the global financial crisis, as well as the more recent uh, coronavirus uh, downturn. And you can see that generally uh, during the periods leading up uh, or during the periods subsequent to, uh, to these downturns, we can see uh, green um, you know, colors coming through suggesting that things are more attractive. But on the next slide, we sort of uh, roll all these indicators up to a composite index where you can really see what has happened through time. So on the next slide, um, what I can show you uh, is uh, specifically how that has evolved uh, once we uh, use a statistical technique to, to roll this up uh, and where we are today relative to, to uh, history. So we, we've seen that we had seen a, a pretty significant uptick in investor risk aversion uh, in the March timeframe. Uh, and uh, more recently, this is as of the end of May, uh, we've seen a drop off and arguably we've seen a continuation of that trend. Uh, we're still not as, uh, you know, the, the, the level of uh, investor pessimism wasn't as high as, as it was uh, during uh, the global financial crisis. Uh, and as, as Ed alluded to before, there's a number of, uh, you know, things that are unique to, unique to this crisis. And uh, one of them certainly was uh, how quickly policymakers responded uh, to this downturn. So broadly speaking, uh, we've seen, uh, you know, pretty high level of uh, high levels of investor pessimism during March. We've seen a drop off uh, in May and more recently. So as a result of that, uh, we're scoring this particular pillar at a medium level uh, today. Shifting gears now to capital supply, the final uh, pillar of the four uh, pillar that we take a look at. Um, and, you know, what we take a look at there again are, um, you know, measures that help us understand whether capital is plentiful or scarce. Uh, there's four subcomponents of that. The first one is quantity uh, of supply, things like issuance in both private and public markets. Uh, the second are terms, uh, things like uh, covenants within um uh, debt issuances, uh, you know, are they lenient? Are they in favor of, an, of providers of capital or user of capital? Uh, the price uh, of uh, the capital being offered, things like spreads and multiples, as well as the activity. So those would be things like uh, the deal volumes, for example, within uh, private equity markets or, or M&A, for example. Um, so we've seen a pretty stark uh, shift in this particular area over the past uh, six to seven months. We started the year uh, in uh, at a level where we felt uh, the terms were not particularly favorable for um, investors. In particular, we felt that you know issuance was relatively high in parts of the market, and we also felt that the pricing was not particularly attractive. But going into the the downturn, we've seen a, a significant shift there. We've seen a lot of the the markets, uh, credit markets in particular. Uh, freeze up quite significantly in the March uh, period, period, and it was only after uh, the significant intervention from policymakers and specifically the Federal Reserve uh, that announced uh, numerous uh, facilities to help uh, stabilize the market and, um, and helped ease the financial conditions. If you go to the next slide, uh, we can sort of take a look at um, the impact that that uh, the policy response has had on issuance more recently. This is look at the, looking at the May gross issuance of um, corporate debt, investment-grade debt in the United States. And you can see that actually uh, this May issuance uh, far exceeded 
the previous calendar year May issuances, and uh, that is uh, you know speaks to the fact that uh, you know uh, financial conditions have improved, um, and as a result of that, we have uh, you know uh, we feel like uh, you know financial conditions are uh, much more attractive today. We think particularly the terms that investors are getting, the covenants uh, that we see. Uh, are much more attractive, and valuations generally are also uh, more attractive than they were uh, before. So, uh, t- again, taking a step back, again, what we're attempting to do with this reward for risk framework, we're, we've we've talked through the the four pillars. Overall, we think uh, we come out at, with a medium uh, conviction rating, um, tilting towards the downside a little bit, with particularly the fundamental risk element of our conviction rating. Um, showing uh, tilting more to to the downside. So as a result of that, in our multi-asset portfolios, we're uh, generally balanced, uh, but tilting more uh, toward uh, safer parts of the market as a result of this analysis. So um, the next step of the the presentation is to now go into the individual asset class view. So uh, once we kind of understand how much risk we want to take in a portfolio, we then want to invest in assets that we think provide the best reward for risk in both uh, the fixed income uh, side of things as well as the equity side of things. So I will now turn it back to Ed, who will uh, comment on the views on the fixed income side. Thank you, Philip. Okay, so um, here you can see just a roundup at a high level of our our views uh, of some key asset classes, uh, particularly in the U.S., through uh, on, on a conviction basis. Um, I'm going to talk in particular about uh, IG credit, so US IG credit and high yield in a minute. But just quickly, you know, if we look at this, you know, at the moment we can see treasuries um, sitting at a low to medium. You know, what we're thinking about there, I guess, is you know, on an absolute basis, you know, the curve has really been pushed down, as you know. Um, and so, you know, absolute valuations are really pretty low. But actually, if you look relative to other markets, you know, the US had. Uh, a premium with this, you know, a higher and a steeper curve. Now that's diminished a lot, so that's come in to an extent, but it, you know, it's still standing a little bit ahead. So on, on on a relative basis, and you know, as we talked about with the measures that are being put in place, with the U.S.'s position um, in terms of being the global reserve currency, etc. You know, we think the fundamental picture is reasonably uh, okay. And so when we roll it all up, we come to sort of a low to medium, perhaps sort of pushing down towards a low at the moment. Um, tips, on the other hand, you know, offering a little bit of a premium, as does IG Credit there, um, be that through the you know, pretty cheap break-evens. So inflation expectations have been sort of pretty constrained um, more recently, although they're improving. So there was a bit of value on, t- on tips on IG Credit. There's a bit of extra um, sort of yield um, due to the, the credit risk, but um, IG has been one of the key beneficiaries of the um, authority support. With high yield, um, you can see there that actually high yield was an asset class that moved down from medium to high to medium um, over the last quarter. And really, um, you know, that was an asset class that really spiked a lot in the crisis. Um, It has really come back in, uh, but it's still offering a premium, we think, in terms of valuations. The flip side to that argument, on the other hand, is, you know, it's not so much a direct beneficiary of, um, you know, the Fed support actions and so the fundamental pieces is is, is slightly weaker. Agency MBS um, not offering much of a premium above treasuries anymore and sitting somewhere around those. Municipals uh, are definitely being impacted, uh, although they have received some uh, measure of support so far. And then uh, hard currency emerging market debts is similar story really to high yield. Uh, again, not um, re- uh, benefiting from as much support, although the IMF um, does still have a, you know, a reasonable amount of headroom, uh, but not as unlimited as uh, on, on the U.S. side. Uh, and local currency um, debt, you know, we think it's actually reasonably interesting. Uh, they've been able to act much more like developed markets uh, through the crisis. So um, to act, um, you know, to put quantitative easing or to cut their rates, which is not normally what might have been the case. And so actually that's been a benefit, but their currency is what's really um, acted as a stabilizer. So we've seen pretty weak currencies there. Overall, we see that as a medium. So if we move to the next slide, I'll, I'll, I'll dig into uh, looking at investment grade and high yield uh, on the U.S. side. So this chart, um, what I wanted to try and do is give you something that's slightly more interesting, hopefully, than, than normal. 
This is actually a chart you would have seen probably a, a number of times, but I've changed it a bit. So if you look down the vertical axis, what you can see is these are the rating grades. So starting with the highest rating, AAA in investment grade, moving down through to the triple Bs, and then we cross over into high yield, which is in orange, uh, and move right down from the double Bs down through to the Cs. And um, on the uh, x-axis, you're seeing uh, the option-adjusted spread, so the extra that you get above a treasury for taking on that credit risk. Um, and what you would normally look at when you see this, I think, is you probably see an average, which are those black lines that you'll see through it. But what I wanted to show you is what you're seeing. Each of those dots is actually an issue. And so what you can see is just all of the bonds that fit into that market within the ICE, Bank of America, uh, GFIM, uh, across investment grade and high yield. Uh, and then you have three dates. You have the end of the year, December 31st. You have March the 23rd, which was really the height of the crisis. And then June the 30th, bring us towards now. Um, the size of the dots are then the size of the issues. So you can see in the investment grade market, you have some significant, some really large issuers of bonds. And in high yield, you have lots of issuers, but they tend to be smaller. And if we look at this through time, you know, what you can see is in you know, the end of the year, that IG market, as you expect, was really pretty tight. And then if you roll into the, the high yield market, you can see, you know, actually the, the range of bonds was still fairly tight uh, through the triple Bs and mo even moving into the, the single Bs. And then, you know, where there was some stress in the, in the triple Cs, so the lowest grades, those that are most likely to default, you see a few names sort of standing out. If we turn to the height of the crisis, you can just see that dispersion. You can just see how much all of that has opened up with uh, not only have all of the dark lines, and so the averages moved up and the overall spreads, but just the dispersion through that has opened up as well. So there was a systematic event where, um, you know, on a systematic basis, um, spreads were moving, but also there was differentiation between different areas. If we turn to the June the 30th, you can see it's really tightened back in. Not all the way, though. You can see at June 30th, there's still a little bit of a dispersion through maybe some of the lower parts of that green, so the lower parts of investment grade. And you see there's still, you know, while stuff is generally tighter in high yield, there is still a bit more dispersion running down through the high yield market. So things have come back, but maybe not all the way. And there's some dispersion there. So for an active manager, that's potentially useful. The last thing I'll um, point out here is if you look at that middle, if you look at the bottom um, piece of the investment grade, so the green, so that's the lowest grades of investment grade, you can just see just how much stress there was um, in bonds that the market thought might be downgraded and might fall down into high yield. So a lot of bonds there were actually trading at spreads that were similar to spreads that you saw in the high yield market. So the market's sort of indicating that they think some of those might fall. And indeed, we did see significant um, levels of um, fallen angels uh, coming through. We'll flip to the next slide. This is just to show um, the same chart, but I've just highlighted energy. So, uh, you know, whilst it was something that affected the market overall. It definitely affected some sectors in particular. Um, energy is one of the largest um, in the mix, but you know, automotive, um, transport, some of these others uh, have been affected as well. They tend to be a bit smaller, around 5% of issuance. But if you look at um, the energy market, you can see that a lot of those um, sort of a lot of the stress in the high parts of the triple B were coming from, from energy. And you can actually see that, you know, even as we move um, to now, you know, there's still some stress uh, in those, uh, in the bottom rungs of the high yield market within energy. If we turn to the next slide, we can actually see, however, you know, I think the significance of this is sometimes um, overplayed. So there was definitely, what we're looking at here is the um, size of the, in green of the high yield energy market value against uh, the rest in, in, in sort of dark blue. And then the line just sort of shows in percentage terms on the right-hand axis um, the size of the energy piece. And you can see there was definitely a ramping up sort of post-crisis with the shell boom, et cetera, of the size of energy in the market. Um, but what we did see, especially as we move through sort of 2015, 2016, we've seen this sort of the size of energy in the market really sort of come down. So dropping from sort of 15% down to sort of sub 9%, um, so 8.5% eight, eight um, uh, at, at its minimum. 
Now, it has bounced back up um, since, and part of that has been that pricing coming back in that we were looking at before. But some of it has been, um, you know, fallen angels. So those are some of the energy names that had been in the investment grade piece falling down into the high yield market. And if we turn to the next slide, we can look at that more generally. So what we're looking at here is just the size uh, in the high yield market of the different credit grades um, with the highest credit grade, the double Bs at the top, uh, moving down to the lowest triple Cs at the bottom or triple C and below. And what you can see is, and this is one of the things one needs to take account of, is actually the size of that top piece, so the highest quality part of the high yield market, has been steadily increasing ever since the, the crisis. So actually, the quality of the high yield market overall in credit uh, quality terms has been increasing. And just at the end there, you can see that significant jump up. That's around a um, seven-point swing, so from about 48 to about 55%. Um, so the... As we saw Fallen Angels, what we're seeing is we're seeing, you know, investment grade quality companies undergoing stress, be it temporary or be it more permanent, but therefore being downgraded and falling into the uh, high yield market. And as you saw with the spreads, they tended to trade at the right spreads for that part of the high yield market before they fall. So they come in and it's not that they're then going to sort of damage the pricing in the high yield market as they fall. They're already there. So what you almost get in a way is actually, you know, you get a whole load of better names and there is the chance of some of them rise back up in time and the pricing again will move. So we think, you know, this is a fundamental improvement in the high yield market that one needs to take into account of at the same time as we understand that, you know, that pricing has really sort of bounced back and therefore, you know, the, the amount of value that we had seen through the crisis is evaporating. If we turn to the next slide. Um, and, you know, why we think this is interesting is um, just the, the difference in size of investment grade and high yield. So this is showing the size of investment grade and high yield um, in, in, in dollar terms. And what you can see is this bottom piece is the green piece. Those are the triple Bs. So those are the, the ones that might fall into high yield. It wouldn't tend to be the whole of that triple B piece. Maybe the bottom third um, of that size would be would refer to like the lowest grade of triple Bs, the lowest bracket within triple Bs. But you know, even that is roughly similar size of the, the entire high yield market at the, uh, at the current time. So we do see, you know, that was one of the things we really were watching, and we think whilst you know the Fed support has really helped, you know, maybe to put a bit of a, a line under this. Nonetheless, just given the size, you know, there is still a scope for this dynamic to continue and for some, you know, more IG pieces to fall into high yield, which, you know, we think overall maybe improves the fundamentals and therefore improves the prospects um, through time. Now, the one other thing I wanted to draw out on this chart, however, is whilst you see that tick up on the high yield part, which is on the right hand side in the um, sort of blue color, which I talked about before, if you look on the IG side, even though we saw those IG pieces falling in, you can see there's still a tick up on the IG side. And that really points to what Philip was talking about, which is, you know, once the Fed had stepped in and really underpinned markets, markets reopened and a lot of IG issues and, and actually a lot of sort of higher quality IG issuers were able to really issue large amounts of bonds, long maturity bonds, so really put their you know, in, uh, their borrowing needs in order for a longer period of time um, and therefore just give themselves more breathing space. And uh, so that, so it's actually been a positive on both the investment grade and the high yield side that we can draw from this. Turning to the last slide um, that I'm going to talk through, you know, this is, you know, a lot of that, the, the market's reopening was predicated on the actions from the Fed and so, but what I wanted to look at here is the, the on the left-hand side, you can see the uh, Fed's credit lending facilities. And really what I want to draw out is the Fed has hardly had to do anything. Yes, we've had a sort of draggy style statement that they're, you know, they will do whatever it takes. Uh, and they put these measures in place. But the amount they've actually had to put in place has been minimal. So what we're looking at here, what the two key things we want to look at here is the little red dots which shows how much they've actually put into these various different measures, the corporate credit facilities, the Main Street lending programs, et cetera. And then the black lines, which show actually the limits um, to those programs as currently sort of um, stipulated from how they've been funded, et cetera. 
And what you can see, there's an enormous amount of headroom. So the Fed has managed to sort of reopen markets, but it's really been the private sector that's then stepped in and you know, allowed a lot of these corporate issuers to borrow and, 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 and therefore to sort of um, deal with their funding needs uh, for the short term. And you, on the right-hand side, you can see a similar sort of thing. You see the Fed started by buying um, just ETFs um, through May. And then, you know, at 23rd of June, it was able to start buying, um, you know, single bonds directly. Um, it can buy anything that's investment grade one to five years. But importantly, it can also buy fallen angels that fell after the 23rd. So if we do see further fallen angels falling into the high yield market, the Fed can actually buy those. So not only is the quality improving, but the Fed support actually reaches down potentially into the high yield market for those issues. But you can see here, even as the Fed started buying direct bonds in, in combination with the ETFs, overall, the amount that it's buying, instead of ramping up, has actually been trailing off uh, through June. Um, so, you know, the Fed, we feel, did what it needed to do psychologically, and it stands ready. And we think, so therefore, even if we get political paralysis and, 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 and programs not necessarily extended, the Fed you know, the programs in place still have a significant amount of headroom within which to act. And that concludes my side. I'll pass over to Philip to uh, give a view on the equity. Thank you, Ed. Uh, so we'll jump right in and go to the next slide and talk uh, at a high level on, uh, on our equity uh, convictions. So this is an overview of our conviction levels initially uh, focused on broad markets. Uh, you can see uh, that generally we think that uh, the reward for risk, uh, the attractiveness of the U.S. stock market is less attractive than other uh, broad markets outside of the United States. Uh, a lot of that is driven by um, a small number of firms that uh, now make up 20 to 25 percent of the, the U.S. stock market, the big tech names that we think um, are not uh, particularly favorably uh, valued at this stage. But if you look outside of the United States, we see a number of markets, including Japan and Europe, um, and parts of uh, emerging markets that are a medium or a medium uh, to high. So we think, broadly speaking, the opportunity set looks attractive uh, on the equity side, particularly if you look at some of the, the sector themes uh, that are highlighted uh, below. So we see financials uh, across regions as well as uh, energy um, sectors uh, look attractive, all of these rating at a medium to high. So I'll spend a bit of time providing some context on uh, that view and, and why those um, more value-oriented parts of the market feature in our portfolio. So the next slide uh, just starts with a, a quick um, comparison of our expected return for financials uh, in Japan, Europe, and the U.S. relative to global stocks. These are 10-year expected return adjusted for inflation. You can see a significant spread between global stocks around uh, 1.8% real uh, compared to uh, 500 basis points and above for financials. Um, that really has to do with, uh, on the one hand, our view that uh, you know financials and banks in particular today um, are uh, much better capitalized than they were during the previous downturn. Uh, on the next slide, we have a bit of a comparison of how uh, capitalization of major international banks looks like today uh, relative to uh, the previous downturn. So on the left-hand side, um, we can see in blue the distribution of capital ratios uh, in 2006 going into the global financial crisis. And compared to that in red, we can see the total capital ratios in uh, 2019 going into this downturn. We can see a markedly better uh, capitalization of major international banks. So we think that uh, as a result of that, banks will be able to weather uh, this downturn better uh, than the previous one. Um, and we also think that uh, you know the, uh, the the excess capital uh, that these companies have in excess of um, the regulatory minimum, which we see there on the on the right hand side, are are going to be sufficient uh, to to cushion uh, the potential impact that this downturn has on profit. So broadly speaking, we do not expect uh, these banks having to go back uh, to capital markets and potentially dilute 
equity. Um, some of the, the policy uh, measures that were put in place in Europe in particular, we've seen a suspension of dividends, uh, which has helped the, uh, the, the capital uh, position even further. Uh, looking at the second quarter earnings, for example, we've seen an improvement in excess capital both in the U.S. and uh, in Europe. Uh, and also that was driven by some pretty strong results that we saw uh, that some of these banks saw on the trading side of their business. So overall, we like financials, and this is a theme that we see not only in the U.S., but also outside of the U.S. and Europe and Japan. Uh, on the next slide, uh, we then uh, look at the same analysis and comparing our uh, return expectations for uh, parts of the energy market uh, against global stocks, and we can again see a significant premium uh, in energy compared to global um, stocks overall. And when we think about the kind of the key drivers of energy stock and energy stock profitability, obviously, uh, they are tied to the oil price. But we think fundamentally what's driving uh, the the earnings and profit dynamics uh, of those uh, energy companies in particular is also what we call the capital cycle. Uh, So what tends to happen uh, when we look at the next slide during uh, energy downturns, uh, these energy companies, uh, this is looking at Europe um, in red, as well as uh, U.S. big oil companies in blue. Um, this is looking at the change in capital expenditures um, following or during uh, oil price downturns. So what tends to happen, um, companies tend to cut, um, the, uh, cut the supply, cut projects, really take a deep look at uh, their assets and put in place uh, cut, 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 uh, cost-cutting initiatives, uh, capital efficiency initiatives uh, that ultimately not only lead to a rebalancing of oil prices, and we think we, we're going to um, get to uh, a rebalancing of oil prices over the next couple of years back to uh, $50 to $60 uh, a barrel, but they also enforce uh, capital discipline where uh, they take a close look at the project that they invest in, which ultimately is sowing the seeds for higher profits uh, in the future. Um, we, we generally like integrated companies because of the strength of their balance sheet, uh, and we think that they uh, will be able to, to weather the, the, this, uh, this uh, downturn uh, quite well, and we've also already seen a, a significant recovery uh, in oil prices from the bottom that we saw in uh, March and April. So with that, uh, the final uh, slide I will show you just uh, kind of bring an analysis that sort of relates, um, you know, some of the areas that we'd like back to uh, how assets tend to perform following a global uh, recession. This analysis is looking at uh, the return of the overall market, as well as some segments uh, of the U.S. market, uh, small um, cap factors, so that's the return difference between small cap stocks and large cap stocks, uh, as well as the value factor, which is the uh, the return of value stocks relative to growth stocks. Uh, so we're comparing the normal return um, of these segments of the market with uh, what tends to happen after global recessions. Uh, we've seen uh, five global recessions going back to 1960. Uh, and generally, what tends to happen following global recessions is that uh, not only the market tends to outperform one year after that uh, that downturn, but we also see generally an outperformance of value stocks as well as small cap stocks. Uh, oftentimes, it doesn't happen immediately. Um, as we've seen in, um, in this recovery, we've seen uh, some of the higher quality names. A lot of people are talking about the big tech names recovering. Uh, but as uh, econ- the economic recovery is um, uh, in full force, and we see, uh, you know, kind of a return of, of profitability of some of these cyclical names in the small cap and value space. What tends to happen after global recessions, we see that part of the market um, outperform. And our portfolios, in terms of how we're, we're positioned within equities in particular, stand uh, to benefit from that trend. Thank you, Philip. Given the record economic downturn of about 35% in this past quarter, can you talk about how that may factor into your view of the U.S. equity market? Sure. So um, certainly the number itself uh, looks extremely high. And, you know, before we kind of talk about, you know, how we're, we position our portfolio, it's just important to keep in mind and, and put this number in a bit of context. First of all, you know, the 35 percent or what came through this morning, I think it was 32, um, was um, 
that, that was really, uh, that's an annualized number. Um, so it's sort of assuming that what happened in one quarter is going to happen for the remainder of the year. Uh, just given the nature of this downturn, we've basically seen a, uh, you know, a kind of a, a forced shutdown of many parts of the economy, both of the, of the supply and demand side. Um, so because of that, we, that, that number looks, looks high at the same time. Uh, as the economy has uh, opened back up, we've also seen uh, an equally sharp, you know, kind of uh, you know, re- reversal of that trend, and then we've also seen a policy response on the back of that. So I think it's important to, to you know, put that number into a bit of context. Uh, it's on the one hand annualized, and also we, we're dealing with a quite a unique uh, downturn from here. Um, you know, from our perspective, look, we, we definitely think that this is a, a, a pretty seer, a severe economic downturn. Uh, our view is that this is not uh, going to lead to a uh, financial crisis. Uh, so this is mainly or this originated in the real economy uh, because uh, consumers couldn't consume anymore um, and uh, you know manufacturers couldn't couldn't produce anymore. Um, so it, um, so as a result of that, uh, we think that the, you know the policy response that was put, was put in place and we expect there to be uh, further you know fiscal stimulus, we think that that will, uh, help us manage the crisis, and, and uh, our base case is that, the, that this will help us avert a, um, a financial crisis. So um, overall, we think that you know uh, there's a lot of parts of the equity market uh, that uh, you know, I lo- alluded to before that we think are attractive. We find opportunities in the two er- the two sectors that we mentioned. Uh, energies and financial, uh, energy and financials, for example, but also there's other segments of the of the global equity market, uh, whether it's Germany, uh, whether it's South Korea, whether it's Mexico, uh, where we find uh, quite quite a bit of value, um, even accounting for uh, the impact that this uh, economic downturn might have. Thanks, Philip. Uh, Ed, what is your perspective on the fixed income side? Yeah, so just on the, you know, on the fixed incomes, I, I, I guess just as, as a opening, I would just say as well, there is still obviously a significant amount of uncertainty. So this number has been bad. Obviously, there was a decent amount of, sort of reopening and an improve, you know, increase in sort of economic activity, actually, um, as we moved forward from, from the quarter that's then being uh, reported on there. So, you know, you would expect that actually we'd probably see, you know, some bounce back and some improvement in the numbers that come through from there, but the question is, I guess, where we where we go from there, um, and you know, we need to see how long this lasts. Do we do we do we find a way out in terms of vaccine, etc.? Um, and you know, are the authorities um, you know prepared to continue to do enough um, to support the economy um, to the extent that is needed whilst we sort of transition through that? You know, on the fixed income side, I think, funnily enough. Probably what you say is it's not so much anymore. So you know we will. I, th- I think we're likely to see the um, you know really not too much on the treasury side. Um, you know treasuries are already pinned incredibly low, and we would expect that um, to continue to be the case. Um, I guess where it's more interesting maybe is on the credit side, and this you know in, so on the investment grade, and and you know increasingly uh, on, in, in any fallen angels. You know you. That Fed support also flows through there. And one way you can maybe think about that is, look, we think it should really help overall. And, and one way that people have thought about it is maybe it you know, perhaps puts a, a sort of cap. Uh, you know, the Fed would put a cap on the level to which spreads could actually get before they would, it would really sort of cause them to ramp up the buying that they haven't had to actually do yet. So you could imagine that it would sort of cap the, the spread widening and therefore the, the losses that might be associated with that. The other thing that you do need to think about, though, I guess, is just, you know, whilst the measures put in place, they, they certainly have helped on the liquidity side. They certainly help in terms of sort of funding. In the end, they can't necessarily help with a solvency issue. They can paper over some cracks, but they can't completely... Um, solve that issue, and so therefore, you know, we will ju- we, we will likely see, and we have already seen, you know, an increase in defaults, um, and so we do just need to sort of keep an eye out and, and pay attention to, you know, the intersection of pricing as it uh, as it's got dearer, but the change in quality of the market as it's improved, uh, but you know, then you know, any stress that you know, comes through in spite of the measures that we've seen. So it's a complicated picture, but I think overall, you know, we're still, 
there's not so much value, but we're still, you know, reasonably constructive, um, I guess, on um, investment grade um, and how your markets, especially as, you know, as a, as a gradation down perhaps in risk from, from equity markets. Mm. Philip, are there any sectors or industries you think will stand out in a post-COVID world? Sure. You know, I think the, the COVID crisis has certainly accelerated some, uh, you know, trends, particularly on the, uh, the technology side and, you know, kind of the, the trend to work from home, for example, uh, you know, has, has definitely accelerated that. We, we would argue that, um, you know, the... Um, those markets and certainly market prices have responded, uh, you know, quite significantly already. And in, in some cases, when we think about the, the weight that uh, big tech names now have uh, in the index, uh, has probably over, uh, you know, responded to that to that structural change. So if you just look at, uh, you know, some of the companies like Netflix and um, and Amazon and uh, and Google. Um, and Apple in terms of their performance year to date, which is, is a 40, uh, 30 to 40% range. Uh, and then if you look at the rest of the market, uh, it's, it's probably down about 5%. You've already seen the market respond uh, quite significantly to those structural changes. And we think, uh, you know, probably uh, market pricing is such that, uh, you know, the, the main beneficiaries of the crisis have probably been uh, bid off a bit too much. And conversely, uh, the, the areas of the market that are uh, more directly impacted, and I think energy uh, is one of those areas, uh, is probably oversold. So no doubt, uh, you know, the, that this um, this downturn has, uh, you know, significant impact on, uh, you know, things like supply chain and also kind of, uh, you know, the trend to, to work from home, uh, digitalization, uh, use of cloud services and things like that. But um, we think that those trends have, have largely been uh, reflected in market prices already. That's our show for today. Uh, my thanks to Philip and Ed. Again, if you haven't already gotten the slides, please find them in the notes section of this episode or by emailing simple at morningstar.com. Thank you for listening today. I'm Drew Carter. Bye for now. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.